Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Tuesday, December 19th, 2023. Uh, as I mentioned on Sunday, this is going to be our last regularly scheduled news roundup of 2023. Uh, barring any unforeseen complications, we will resume normal operations on Sunday, January 7th. Between now and then, I'll be posting some of our usual history nuggets. And if there is a need, I will try to be available to offer a news update uh, as per as time permits. Um, I just want to take this opportunity to thank again all of you for uh, reading and supporting and in this case, I guess, listening to foreign exchanges in 2023. Happy holidays to you and yours. Uh, and um, I'll see you next year uh, after after we finish this uh, this roundup. Let's get on to it. Uh, there's a couple of anniversaries. On December 19th, 1946, the Battle of Hanoi marked the start of the, the 1946 to 1954 First Indochina War. Uh, the battle began when Viet Minh forces bombed Hanoi's power plant and under cover of darkness began attacking French forces in the city. The Viet Minh eventually had to withdraw in the face of superior French numbers by February 1947. Though, of course, they would eventually win the war. The outcome was a partition of Vietnam into northern and southern states, which ended when North Vietnam won the Vietnam War. Uh, and the uh, and also, uh, of course, the uh, there was the ouster of French forces from the region was the second big outcome of the war. Uh, on December 19th, 1984, British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, big, uh, big fan, uh, and Chinese Premier Zhao Ziyang signed the Sino-British Joint Declaration in Beijing. The declaration set July 1st, 1997 as the date upon which the British government would turn control of Hong Kong, including Kowloon and the new territories, over to the Chinese government. Moving on to the news, we start, as always, in the Middle East, and we start there in Israel-Palestine. Tuesday began with the United Nations Security Council expected to vote on a resolution that includes some sort of a call for a ceasefire and or increased humanitarian aid for Gaza, but it ended with that vote having been delayed for at least another day, which means, in so many words, the council members have so far been unable uh, to convince the Biden administration to drop its veto. Uh, the vote had been scheduled for Monday uh, and then was delayed until Tuesday uh, and could be delayed uh, until, I don't know, Thursday, Friday, the heat death of the universe, who knows, uh, if there remains some vain, maybe vain hope of gaining U.S. acquiescence. Then again, one assumes that the countries pushing for the resolution are going to tire at some point uh, of getting the runaround from Washington and put the resolution up for a vote without an agreement, uh, which will force, uh, okay, won't actually force, they're not forced to do anything, uh, but from the administration's perspective, it will force it to cast another politically and geopolitically divisive veto. Uh, if a resolution does emerge, there's no reason to believe that it will affect the Israeli war effort in any way. UN Security Council resolutions are famously binding but unenforceable unless somebody is prepared to enforce them. In this, in this case, the U.S. will ensure that there is not anyone prepared to do that. Uh, beyond that general impotence, uh, any resolution that passes muster with the U.S. government will surely be worded in so milquetoast a fashion as to allow explicitly the Israeli government to continue doing what it's doing. 
in other news, the Israeli military, or IDF, continued to pound Gaza relentlessly on Tuesday to, I assume, no particular surprise. The UN Relief and Works Agency now estimates that the IDF has damaged or destroyed roughly 60% of Gaza's infrastructure and has displaced some 90% of the territory's roughly 2.3 million residents. The official death toll from Gazan health officials is approaching 20,000, and the real death toll has by now likely exceeded that figure. Most of them were civilians, though Israeli military officials somberly informed Reuters on Tuesday that a high civilian death toll is simply the, quote, cost of crushing Hamas, end quote. Apparently, it's a cost the Israeli government is happy to let Gazans pay, Though I think it's probably important to note that we're taking it for granted that the IDF is actually crushing Hamas amid all the violence. I don't think there's a way to know that to any degree of certainty. Outside the UN, talks on reviving the previous ceasefire prisoner exchange agreement are continuing, though the parties reportedly aren't approaching a deal yet. The head of Hamas's political wing, Ismail Haniya, is reportedly bound for Egypt on Wednesday to continue the discussions, which presumably means they've made progress, even if nothing is imminent as yet. And Israeli Prime, uh, President uh, Isaac, Isaac Herzog told a group of ambassadors on Tuesday that, quote, Israel is ready, end quote, for a second ceasefire. Barak Ravid at Axios is reporting that the Israeli government has offered a seven-day ceasefire in return for the release of 40 hostages, would be, which would be roughly half the number who were released during last month's one-week ceasefire. Uh, I'm speculating, but I could imagine that the Biden administration might be leaning heavily on the Israelis to make an offer like this in order to short-circuit the ceasefire effort at the UN Security Council. According to CNN, the Israeli government is considering a plan to build a humanitarian compound in northern Gaza uh, to house displaced Palestinians. There are no details yet, but in theory, this is supposed to allow the IDF to tell the people it's displaced from northern Gaza to southern Gaza that it now wants to displace them back to northern Gaza. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant suggested on Monday that some of those people might be able to go back north soon. But as there's little in northern Gaza but rubble, the only conceivable way to relocate them would involve the construction of some sort of facility like this. The plan would only proceed once the IDF believes it's flushed out any remaining pockets of militants in the north, so it's anybody's guess what sort of timetable might be in the offing. Human Rights Watch on Monday issued a new report accusing the IDF of, quote, using starvation of civilians as a method of warfare, end quote, uh, in Gaza. As evidence, uh, Human Rights Watch cited not just the conditions in Gaza, but also several public statements made by Israeli officials over the past two and a half months, quote, expressing their aim to deprive civilians in Gaza of food, water and fuel, end quote. Those officials, uh, and some in the Biden administration as well, I'm pointing to you, John, uh, John Kirby, uh, have openly admitted that what's happening in Gaza is a form of collective punishment, which is supposed to be against the rules of the rules-based order. Normally, the U.S. government at least pretends to care about that sort of thing. Uh, the IDF claimed on Tuesday that it had killed Subi Ferwana, a prominent financier for Hamas, in an airstrike in the southern Gazan city of Rafah. There's no confirmation of this, but if true, he would be one of the most senior Hamas officials slash associates the Israelis have killed since the October 7th militant attacks in southern Israel. Hamas has not, as far as I know, cons uh, confirmed Ferwana's death. 
Uh, and the IDF says it's investigating reports that a number of people detained during its Gazan ground operation have died in Israeli custody. There's no indication how many people this concerns. The Israeli newspaper Haaretz reported earlier on Tuesday that several have died in an Israeli facility near Beersheba, where they have been, quote, blindfolded and handcuffed for most of the day, and the lights are on at the facility throughout the night, end quote. Uh, In Yemen, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin briefed representatives of 43 countries plus the European Union and NATO on Tuesday regarding the new task force that the U.S. military has formed, uh, which we talked about uh, in yesterday's newsletter, to protect Red Sea shipping from attacks by Houthi rebels uh, in northern Yemen. Uh, It appears he was hoping to bring at least some of them into the operation, uh, which right now only includes 10 countries and notably just one Arab state, that being Bahrain. Uh, The latter in particular could be a source of embarrassment for the Biden administration. Uh, The Houthis, for their part, uh, insisted on Tuesday that they have no intention of stopping their attacks regardless of any international response. Major shipping firms that have sworn off of the Red Sea shipping lane because of those attacks appear, according to the Wall Street Journal, to be taking a wait-and-see approach to the new operation and still seem intent on steering clear of the region for now. Uh, And in Iran, the Biden administration on Tuesday blacklisted four people and 10 entities allegedly involved in Iran's military drone program. In addition to Iran, the new sanctions affect firms in Hong Kong, Indonesia, and Malaysia. In Asia and Bangladesh, Railway Minister Nurul Islam Sujan has accused the opposition Bangladesh National Party of causing a fire on a passenger train in Dhaka on Tuesday that killed at least four people. BNP officials denied the allegation and suggested that the government may have caused the fire itself uh, to try to discredit the party. Uh, As far as I know, there's no indication yet what caused the fire, so it may be a bit premature to be accusing anyone of arson. In Myanmar, according to the New York Times, that country's ruling junta has taken to abducting men in order to address a military manpower shortage. I'll read you the introduction to that piece. At least 16 young men disappeared last month. In four cities across Myanmar, under cover of darkness, armed groups took them to police stations, according to family members and some of the men themselves. Some were released after paying ransoms. In other cases, failure to pay led to forced conscription into the military. Other men simply vanished. Such disappearances began after Myanmar's military seized power in February 2021, but they appear to have accelerated in recent weeks at a time when the military is facing the most serious challenge to its rule since the coup. In October, three ethnic rebel armies started the biggest offensive against the government in nearly three years. The New York Times confirmed the abductions of 16 men in November through interviews with men who had been released or with relatives of others. In some cases, it is unclear where they were taken and why. In a country that is functionally locked down by the military junta, information is hard to come by, and it is difficult to determine the exact number of disappearances. But the accounts have sent a chill through communities. Family members are instructing men and boys to stay home. Parents are pulling their sons out of school. In North Korea, the Japanese, South Korean, and U.S. governments announced on Tuesday that they've created a new joint system to monitor North Korean missile launches in what they call real time. The only innovation here, as far as I can tell, is that South Korea and Japan are going to share their information directly without passing it through the U.S., which is indicative of their improved 
relationship. Uh, the aim, I guess, will be to institutionalize that data sharing so that if the bilateral relationship worsens again, it won't affect this particular effort. Um, in Africa, in Sudan, uh, the Sudanese military confirmed on Tuesday that it has pulled out of Wad Madani, putting that city firmly under the control of the Rapid Support Forces. Uh, there have been reports of airstrikes on parts of the city, which is how the military typically responds after it's been run out of a place by the RSF. There are also reports of heavy airstrikes in parts of the Darfur region. These aren't going to dislodge the RSF from places that it's already seized, but they do pose a significant risk to civilians. In Ethiopia, the Egyptian government declared on Tuesday that the latest round of regional negotiations over the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam have collapsed. Uh, the Egyptian and Sudanese governments have been concerned about the dam's impact on Nile water, Valley water levels for several years now, but have never been able to reach an accord with the Ethiopian government over the dam's management. Ethiopia completed filling the dam's reservoir earlier this year, and getting past that step should, in theory, lower tensions over the issue, though Cairo in particular remains concerned about the dam's impact during periods of low rainfall. In Somalia, the Spanish Navy has reportedly confirmed that a Maltese flagged cargo vessel that reported a hijacking off the Somali coast on Friday was indeed hijacked. There have been a couple of hijacking incidents near Somalia in recent weeks that have been subsumed into concerns about Houthi attacks on shipping, uh, you know, as we talked about earlier, uh, but that appear to be a separate issue involving a potential resurgence of Somali piracy. The threat of Somali pirates really became an issue in the early 2000s and escalated into a serious threat to commerce in the late 2000s and into the early 2010s, but it tapered off under international pressure and Friday's incident may be the first successful act of Somali piracy since 2017. Uh, there was a failed hijacking late last month that probably also involved Somali pirates. In Uganda, Allied Democratic Forces fighters attacked a village in western Uganda early Tuesday morning, killing at least 10 people. The ADF, of course, began its existence as a Ugandan rebel group in the 1990s before migrating into the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo, but it still carries out occasional attacks inside Uganda. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the UN Security Council did vote on Tuesday to start winding down its peacekeeping mission in that country, Monusco, one year ahead of schedule. The council was responding to a request from Congolese President Felix Tshisekedi and voted one day before Tshisekedi is likely to win re-election. Uh, given the mission's inability to keep anything resembling peace, it's unclear how much its absence will be noticed. On to Europe and Ukraine. With that country running out of air defense ammunition, the Biden administration is reportedly seeking some assistance from Japan. And I'll read you a bit of this piece uh, from the Washington Post. Japan is expected this week to formalize a change in policy that will enable it to export several dozen Patriot missiles to the United States, a move that would backfill Washington's stockpiles. That would give Washington flexibility to send more of the sophisticated air defenses to Ukraine, which is in desperate need as Kyiv gears up for punishing Russian airstrikes this winter. The change and modification in defense export rules will not explicitly mention the Patriot system, but will meet a key request by the Biden administration, said U.S. officials speaking on the condition of anonymity because discussions are ongoing. Japan manufactures missiles for the Patriot, the U.S. military's premier air defense system, under license from Raytheon. In Serbia, the International Election Observation Mission issued a statement on Tuesday regarding Sunday's parliamentary and municipal election in Serbia. 
The gang apparently had some concerns about how the election was conducted, saying that it was, quote, marred by isolated instances of violence, procedural irregularities, and frequent allegations of organizing and busing of voters to support the ruling party in local elections, end quote, and that, quote, further instances of serious irregularities, including vote buying and ballot box stuffing, were observed, end quote. Uh, Other than that, I guess it was fine. Uh, The ruling Serbian Progressive Party, or SNS, appears to have won a sole majority in the next parliament, though it may seek coalition partners to pad out its margin a bit. Opposition parties are crying foul, particularly regarding the close municipal election in Belgrade, where they claim the SNS brought people in from Bosnia to vote illegally. Uh, In Finland, the Russian foreign ministry summoned Finland's ambassador in Moscow on Tuesday to lodge a complaint after the Finnish government reached agreement on a new mutual defense pact with the U.S. earlier this week. The pact hasn't gone into effect yet, but it mirrors deals the U.S. has with several other NATO member states that give the U.S. military access to bases in those countries. Uh, The problem from the Kremlin's perspective is that Finland isn't just any other NATO member. It's a NATO member that directly borders Russia. Russian officials have threatened to take unspecified action to counter, and that was their term, uh, the arrangement. In the Americas, in Cuba, William Leo Grant, uh, writing for Responsible Statecraft, uh, says he doesn't think terribly highly of the Biden administration's Cuba policy. Uh, I'll read you a bit of his piece. In short, there is no longer any legitimate rationale whatsoever for Cuba being designated a state sponsor of terrorism. Cuba stays on the list because the Biden administration does not have the political courage to remove it, even though Cuba and the United States have a memorandum of agreement and active dialogue on counterterrorism cooperation. Various U.S. officials have offered different stories about whether the Biden administration is reviewing Cuba's designation. Shortly after Biden's inauguration, then-White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said it was under review, along with the rest of Trump's Cuba policies. More recently, in March 2023, Secretary of State Antony Blinken was browbeaten by Representative Maria Salazar, Republican of Florida, into declaring it was not being reviewed. A number of Democratic members of Congress who have been pushing the administration to take Cuba off the list were given the impression by Biden administration by Biden officials that the policy was being reviewed until Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Eric Jacobstein told them last week that it was not. They were livid, according to a report in The Intercept. Treating Cuba's listing like a political poker chip has real costs, not only to Cuba, but to the United States as well. Most obviously, it delegitimizes the list itself, reducing it to little more than an arbitrary political cudgel. Go figure. Uh, Say it ain't so. Uh, Finally, in the United States, Spencer Ackerman Forever Wars reports on a new effort to pressure the U.S. military into acknowledging the civilians it's been killing in Somalia. I'll read you the intro to his piece. A coalition of Somali and international human rights groups have informed the Pentagon that even in cases of, quote, civilian harm confirmed by the U.S. government, end quote, Somalis who have lost loved ones to U.S. military strikes have received no acknowledgement, let alone recompense, from Washington. Quote, even as we have contacted the U.S. government in every way we know how, we have never been able to start, even start a process of getting justice. The U.S. has never even acknowledged our existence, end quote, said Abu Bakr Dahir Mohammed, surviving brother of Lul Dahir Mohammed and surviving uncle of Lul's four-year-old daughter, Miriam Shiloh Mous, whom a U.S. drone strike killed on April 1st, 2018. Uh, His quote was given to the African publication, The Continent. 
24 human rights groups from Somalia and abroad included his quote in a letter they delivered to the Pentagon on Monday morning. The letter seeking redress underscores the casual manner with which the U.S. leaves gaping emotional and material wounds in people caught in the maw of the open-ended war on terror long after slaying their relatives. Uh, a copy was shared with Forever Wars, and Spencer has uh, reproduced it over at his site. You can uh, click through and check that out. Uh, that's it for us. Uh, again, maybe for 2024, I can't promise anything, but, uh, I do intend to take a little bit of time off here and, uh, hope that you all have a very happy, uh, and healthy holiday season, uh, you and your families. And, uh, once again, thank you so much for supporting foreign exchanges in 2023 and, uh, f- hope that you will stick with the newsletter in 2024 until next time. Take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.